Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 is where we will be today. Uh, as we make our way, one thing that I want us to kind of consider today and think about, uh, most of the previous passages that we have been looking at is the author of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit has has written to us and told us so many things, but largely what we've heard over the past few weeks as Robert and Aaron have preached, previously even before that, we've heard a lot of warnings. We've heard a great amount of warning against uh, letting go of the faith, of letting go of the truth that we hold so dearly. We've heard warnings of hardening our hearts. We've heard warnings of not entering into God's rest. And certainly this makes sense when you consider that the Holy Spirit is writing to some certain Israels, uh, certain Hebrews, certain Jews who are currently unsaved, who are uh, in, in the process of rejecting Christ, rejecting the good news of the gospel. So as the Holy Spirit writes, it makes sense that he would write using warnings. Because indeed, any appropriate proper presentation of the gospel, any sort of evangelism, any sort of gospel preaching will inevitably involve warnings. Warnings of God's wrath, warnings of what is to come for those who fail to repent, those who fail to enter into God's rest, those who harden their hearts. Certainly those warnings are appropriate and, and any gospel preacher who is doing it correctly will offer those warnings throughout his preaching and teaching and evangelism. But the gospel also involves more than just a telling of warnings, more than just a, a warning of impending doom and destruction to those who reject Christ. But the gospel is also a telling, a describing, a promise of blessings. There we are. Of blessings to come for those who are in Christ Jesus. The gospel is not just warnings. It's not just an escape from terrible things, specifically God's wrath. It is that, and certainly that is a good and great thing. But even more than that, there are blessings and good things that follow, joys that come in addition to the joy of escaping God's wrath. And it's great today that our text that we have presented for us presents some of these blessings, some of these joys of embracing the gospel, of entering into God's rest that Aaron spoke about last week. And so we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, our text says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the gospel. Lord, as we see the blessings, the benefits that we enjoy today here, Lord, that you would encourage us, that you would encourage us with the gospel, Lord, that you would encourage us 
that the, the righteousness that we enjoy is a righteousness that is, is not our own and not dependent on our own goodness and rightness, but it is found in Christ Jesus. Lord, may we enjoy that today as we read the benefits, the blessings that come to us who are your children, who are called according to your purpose. Lord, I ask that you would guide us as we study your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Here in our passage today, we begin to sink our teeth into a concept that has already been previewed in the previous chapters of Hebrews, and one that will be further expounded upon through the coming chapters in Hebrews. In fact, later on, there are whole chapters devoted to this concept, this concept being that of Christ as our high priest. This is not something that is introduced initially here, but in fact, we see it in every chapter previously. In Hebrews chapter 1, in the first few verses, we see Christ represented as the high priest making sacrifice for sin. We see it again in previous chapters, chapter 2, chapter 3, and now in chapter 4, we begin to really expound upon this idea that Christ is our high priest. And in reality, this is one of the main themes of the book of Hebrews, Christ as our high priest, which is why it is so often uh, appealed to, which is why it is so often repeated. It makes sense because the point of the book is that Christ is the fulfillment of the old covenant. That the new covenant that is ours in Christ Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, Old Covenant represented by the law. It is not that the law has been abolished, that the law is evil or wicked, but that it has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And so it would make sense then, in accordance with the Old Testament law and the structure of the sacrificial system, that we would see Christ as the fulfillment of this role of high priest. In fact, the perfect and great and final fulfillment of this role. And we will indeed unpack that even next week and in the weeks to come. But for now, we will uh, look specifically at various aspects. In fact, the benefits that are ours because Christ is our high priest. And we will look at three specific benefits as we make our way through these verses that we have when we have Christ as our great high priest. The first benefit we have, which is point number one, is that we have good reason to hold fast our confession. This comes from verse 14 where we see, let's read again, Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We are told in this verse that we are to hold fast our confession. That ought to lead us to ask the question, what is our confession? What is the confession that we ought to be holding fast to? And I would argue it's the confession that is expounded upon all throughout the book of Hebrews, all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the Bible. In fact, as the apostles have written for us, they have made it their task, as Paul says, to preach what? Christ and Him crucified. That the teaching, the truth, the understanding surrounding the person and work of Jesus Christ, this is our confession. If you read the whole of the New Testament and you don't see Christ as central to the New Testament, as him as the confession, then you've missed it. The truth about Jesus is our confession, that he came and lived among humanity, 
living a perfect life in accordance with the law of God. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He died on the cross and then was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and all of this to accomplish our redemption. This is our confession that we hold fast to, that we are called to hold fast to, that we were encouraged to hold fast to, and that we are given hope in. This is our confession, and we can hold this confession fast. Why can we hold this confession? Well, the text would say because we have a great high priest, one who has passed through the heavens, who is seated at the right hand of God and is mediating for us, is interceding for us this very moment. He is representing us before God Almighty. Here we see Christ's mediation, Christ's priestly work that he is doing for us right now before God the Father. That his priestly duties did not end when the sacrifice was offered on the cross. Certainly that was a a great and important and central point of his priesthood. But his priesthood did not end then. But rather now we see even still the benefits that we are reaping as he is operating today, right now, at God's right hand as our high priest, interceding for us, mediating for us as our representative. And church family, we need a representative before God. When I think about what it means to have a a representative or representation, this is the kind of language that you might hear on TV or movies when, when a lawyer is is coming onto the scene. If you watch much, I don't know, law, TV, uh, crime stuff, law and order, um, or even certain movies where, where courtrooms are depicted, oftentimes some of the most powerful and influential figures in these TV shows and in these movies are the lawyers, right? The lawyers, the attorneys, those who represent their clients. And there's a lot of movies where Lawyers are seen as the powerful figure, as the one who commands the respect of the courtroom, as one who is necessary if this person is going to win their case, is going to receive proper representation. And I think about that. I think about the the need of of lawyers in a courtroom. In fact, uh, good lawyers in a courtroom. And it reminds me of the reality of what we have in Christ Jesus. Now, Christ Jesus is not so much a lawyer or attorney, but he does represent us before God. And he does so in a way that no lawyer, however great or or smart a lawyer or attorney is, Christ is a better representative. For, For what makes a good attorney? What makes a good lawyer? Someone who knows the facts. Someone who is able to speak it clearly and give a strong defense for their client. A person who knows the law well. And unfortunately, in some cases, a person who is able to twist the law to meet their needs in order to get their client off the hook or released or declared innocent. And that is a reality with our world today that we live in, that we know corruption exists. We know it exists even in places where it is supposed to be rooted out, such as our judicial system. But the cool thing about Christ as our representative as better than any lawyer, any attorney ever could be or will be, is that Christ knows the law perfectly, is able to create a defense for us perfectly, and is able to do so not by twisting the law to meet his needs, 
Not by deceiving the judge and somehow getting us off on a technicality, but by appeasing the law. It is one of the most unique things that is unlike any other courtroom scene you could ever imagine where Christ's defense for us is not, they've done nothing wrong, your honor. That is the kind of defense you would hear in a courtroom today. Either they have done nothing wrong or they did something wrong, but it's not their fault. That is not Christ's defense of us. For indeed, that would be a lie. That would be untrue. We have done something wrong. We have sinned. We have rebelled against God Almighty. And we have done so willingly and knowingly. And we are without excuse, Romans 1 tells us. So what kind of defense is it that Christ could offer for us then? The defense is yes, they are guilty. Yes, they have broken the law. Yes, they deserve your wrath, holy God. But give it to me instead. Let me take their wrath so that they might go free. Count my righteousness to their account and punish me so that they can be free. And in that way, he is the perfect representative. So that when, when a defense is given on our behalf, it is not that we are innocent. It is not that we have not done wrong. It is not that we have not sinned. Christ says, I paid the price. Atonement has been made for that wrong. Do not credit it against them but count my righteousness to them. There is no greater defense that could ever be given, and there is no other person in history that could give such a defense, for indeed Christ is the only perfect and upright and righteous representative that we could ever have. It's because of this that the Holy Spirit says later in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, again, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We can hold fast to this confession that is ours, that Christ Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that he has taken our punishment. We can hold fast to the, this confession because God is faithful to his promises. And our high priest is faithful and perfect in his role. Therefore, let us hold fast our confession. The second reason that we can find hope and joy and see benefit from our great high priest is point number two, that we have good reason to rely on our high priest. Verse 15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. It is a great comfort for us to have a high priest who understands our suffering who knows our weaknesses. Even in our lives, in our relationship with one another, we see the value of this kind of empathy. We see the power of this kind of understanding of a situation that is so central in order to be able to minister effectively, to be able to minister in a better, more meaningful way. Indeed, those of us who have been through trials, who have experienced suffering, who have even been found in our weakness or in our sin, we know that the people who are most effective in encouraging us and ministering to us and speaking truth to us are those who have been where we have been. It means very little to someone who is suffering, for someone who has never suffered to come along and say, I understand. Any of us who have suffered 
knows that that's one of the last things that you ever want to hear from someone. I understand how you feel. We know that that's not the case so often. We say it, and I think people say that in in a good heart and not in any intention to be malicious, but so often when we are suffering and we hear someone telling us, I understand, and we know they've never been through what we've been through, it's so easy for us to say, no, you don't understand. I remember when my dad passed away, and one of the most powerful things, one of the most encouraging things that my mom was able to be encouraged by was able to find strength from was other women in the church, other widows in the church who came around her, who sat with her, who listened to her, who prayed with her, who cried with her, who sought not to offer some great eloquent advice, who sought not to describe or compare their situation to hers, but having been through what she had been through, understanding to a large extent her pain, sat with her, encouraged her, prayed with her. That meant far more than what many other people could offer. And it came from a heart of understanding, a heart that knows the pain, a heart that feels the suffering and knows the weakness. To an infinitely greater degree, Christ, as our high priest, can relate to us. He knows our weakness. When we are struggling, when we are suffering, there is not a single ounce of our suffering or our struggling or our weakness that he is not acquainted with. He knows it. He knows it well. When we are tempted, our God understands. Christ understands what it means to be tempted. But a necessary key to this whole doctrine of Christ's priesthood is found at the end of verse 15, where he says that he was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. This line in that verse matters. It matters for various reasons. First of all, it matters because if he had sinned, then he would have to offer sacrifices for himself first before he could ever make sacrifices for us. This was the case with every priest. Every high priest that would go and make sacrifice for the people of God, that would go into the Holy of Holies once a year to make the sacrifice for the nations, what did he have to do before that? He had to make sacrifices for himself. He had to cleanse himself through this process first before he could ever enter in and make sacrifice for the people. This is one essential way in which Christ, the great high priest, is different and better from every other high priest that has come before. Because he had no need to make atonement for his own sin. He had no need to make a sacrifice for his own sin, for indeed he was perfect, spotless, the righteous lamb of God. So we see the necessity of this line, yet without sin so that he was able to be the proper sacrifice. It matters also because Jesus was both the priest and the sacrifice. In order to be that acceptable sacrifice before God, he had to be without spot or blemish. We see here at work the doctrine of Christ's active obedience, that Christ throughout his life lived perfect. He lived perfect in accordance with with the law. Only one person throughout scripture, throughout history, throughout life has ever lived in perfect obedience to the law, and that is Christ Jesus. And it is because of his perfect act of obedience that he was the acceptable sacrifice before God, that he appeased the law. We as as Protestants in here today understand and believe that we are not saved by our works, but we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Amen? Amen. 
But there is a truth, a reality that is the case that we are in one sense saved by works, but we are saved by works that are not our own. We are saved by Christ's works. Christ's obedience to the law, his good works, in the great exchange, this righteous imputation where our sin is given to him and his righteousness is credited to us, it is as though we obeyed the law perfectly. When the Lord judges, he ju- judges us, he judges us as righteous because Christ's righteousness is credited to us. And his righteousness is true because he was obedient to the law in every respect. He was tempted as we are yet without sin. Lastly, this matters because this means that Jesus was truly able to sympathize with us because he experienced temptation. In fact, Charles Spurgeon would argue that Christ experienced temptation to a greater degree than anyone else has ever experienced temptation. The reason he argues this is because Christ is the only person who has ever experienced temptation to its fullest and beaten it. Each and every one of us here in this place has given way to temptation. Each and every one of us, even this week, we have given in to temptation to sin. And in that way, we have never actually seen sin to its greatest extent. But Jesus, having never given in to sin, took it all the way to the end. He knows how much power temptation can bring. He knows the pull of temptation to its fullest because he endured all of it and never gave in. I'll give you a uh, sort of interesting and, and perhaps silly example of this, but if you would bear with me, I think it might help us uh, understand the point I'm trying to make. This is a, a, an illustration um, kind of given by Charles Spurgeon, but I'm going to make it my own to, to a certain degree. Temptation is like uh, someone trying to open a pickle jar, imagine. I, wouldn't, I'm, I don't want to brag, but there is no pickle jar that I've ever not been able to open, Okay. I, don't, I think I'm gifted, but I've never not been able to open a pickle jar. It might take a little, you know, rubber gripper. It might take uh, some tapping on the counter, but no pickle jar has ever withstood my efforts to open it. Not a one. Or hot peppers. None of them. Pepperoncinis, banana peppers, you name it. I have never not been able to open a jar. If there was a jar that ever were to come along, And I tried and tried and tried, but it never gave way. It never opened it. That jar of pickles would be the only jar to ever actually know my full ability to try and open a pickle jar. Because I've never had to max out and failed on any other pickle jar. Does that make sense? You see what I'm saying? I know it's silly, but it's the truth. That one pickle jar would be the only pickle jar in the history of my pickle jar opening days that would ever actually know my full ability to try and open a pickle jar. And I would throw everything I had at it. I may even break out some heat, hit it with a torch. But only that jar would know the fullness of my strength and my pull in order to be able to open a pickle jar. This then, silly as it might be, I think gives us a helpful understanding and how Christ knows temptation greater than any of us because he is the only one who has ever fully and completely withstood the full force of temptation and resisted it. We have all given into temptation, but Christ, unlike all of us, 
never gave in, though he was tempted in every respect as we are. So we can trust that there is nothing that we face, no temptation that we go through that Christ has not been through and experienced, not only to the degree we have, but to a greater degree than we have. And all of, all of it unjustly, all of it by his own choice to condescend and come and take on this temptation. This is a great hope, a great joy for us, a great benefit for us to know that Christ is not seated in the heavens, distant from us, having no understanding of what it's like. This is what the, the deists would tell you, that God is so great, he is uh, above us and has no bearing on our lives, cannot relate to us, is so, so separated from us, he is transcendent, transcendent, transcendent only. This is what many other religions believe as well, that God is so distant from us that he is completely unable to even relate to us. But that is not the case with our God. We have a God who condescended and came down to this earth and took on temptation, took on our weakness so that he might be our faithful high priest, one who is able to sympathize, relate to us, and in that way intercede and mediate for us in the way that we need. Thirdly, we can draw near to the throne with confidence. This is another great benefit that we have as Christ, with Christ as our high priest. Verse 16 tells us this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The verse here tells us that we can draw near not timidly, not in fear that we might be destroyed because God changed his mind, but that we can draw near the throne of grace with confidence. Confidence because Jesus Christ is our high priest, because he is perfect, because he is interceding for us on our behalf. We are told here that we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, but I do think that there is a warning that needs to be given here as we consider what it means to draw near to the throne of grace and to do so with confidence because it is very easy for us to confuse confidence with arrogance. There is a sense in which we as humans can come to the throne of grace, that we can seek to come to God with a sense of arrogance. And this takes on many forms. I think we can see the difference between confidence and arrogance by looking at various things. We can see it by looking at David and Goliath. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, we see the difference between confidence and arrogance contrasted against one another. In 1 Samuel 17, we, we know the story of David and Goliath. We know uh, at least the highlights of what happens. But one thing that's interesting is the way Goliath approaches the camp of Israel. He does so, and what does he do? He defies the living God. He defies the ranks of Israel, and in doing so, defies the one and true and only God, the holy God, and in, do so, in doing so, approaches God with a great amount of arrogance. But then what do we see coming from David? As David comes out to meet Goliath, we have in 1 Samuel chapter 17, arguably one of the greatest uh, moments of trash talk in scripture, uh, probably comparable or, or comparable only to Elijah on the Mount of Mount Carmel, but we see 
David here replying to the Philistine after he says, come and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. He says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks as he insults David? And then we see David's response in verse 45 of 1 Samuel chapter 17. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth and that all Israel may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into my hand. That's some serious trash talk right there. But it's trash talk unlike any trash talk you will ever hear on this earth. Because what is David saying? He's not bragging on his skill with the sling, though he could. He's not bragging on his speed, his agility. You can't hit what you can't catch type of thing. What is his boast in? What is his bragging? What is his confidence in? It is in the promises of God that you have defied the holy and living God and he will give you into my hand, not because I am great, but because he is holy and he will be avenged. Here we see then this great contrast between arrogance as we approach God and confidence as we approach God. We can see also confidence as we approach the throne coming from Mary when she finds out the good news that she is going to bear the Messiah. And we see in Mary's song, the Magnificent, as she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Notice the confidence with which Mary speaks. She speaks here as though these things have already happened. They have not. But she speaks in what is called the prophetic perfect. She speaks of future events as though they have already happened. Why? Because she knows that God is faithful, that she is confident in the goodness and the grace and the faithfulness of God to his promises. This is what confidence looks like. Again, we can see this contrasted in many ways, none more glaring than that of the Pharisees who came before God with arrogance, pointing to their good deeds, pointing to their good works. We remember the Pharisee who prayed next to the tax collector and and what was his prayer? Lord God, I thank you that I am not like this tax collector. I fast. I obey your word. I am righteous, God. This is arrogance. 
and a bad way to approach the throne of grace. And Jesus tells us what will become of those who approach the throne of grace with arrogance. He says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Who does he say that to? He doesn't say that to the the enemies of Israel. He doesn't say that to the atheists. He says that to those who come and say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Look what we have done, God. But they approached God. They approached the throne with arrogance and were cast out. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, I'm not like Goliath. I am not at war with the people of God. I am not opposed to the church. I'm here. I'm doing it. I am nothing like them. Therefore, this does not apply to me, for I am not a Pharisee. But let me just offer a a word of warning, warning that it's easier than we might think to fall into arrogance. For consider King Uzziah. We know from 2 Chronicles, the story of King Uzziah It's a very interesting one. King Uzziah was set on the throne over Judah when he was 16 years old. And he reigned over Judah, the nation of Judah, for 52 years. And some interesting things are said about King Uzziah. In fact, something that is rarely said about a king is that he walked in the ways of the Lord, that he honored God. And that in return, the Lord blessed him and prospered him in all that he did as king. As king, he did some great things. He set up defenses around Israel. He waged war against the enemies of God, much like David did with Goliath. He was seeking to push back evil in the world and exalt God. It says that he was sitting under and learning from the prophet Zechariah, learning to walk in the ways of the Lord. King Uzziah was a rare, good king in the nation of Israel. But we see the tragic end, the tragic thing that Uzziah does in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 16, where we have this tragic verse. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, and entered the temple of the Lord, Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. We see that in his victory, in his power, as he was being blessed by God, as he was serving the nation of Judah well, as the Lord was blessing him, he grew proud. And he entered into the place where he was not supposed to be. He took on the role that was not his to take on in his arrogance he approached the throne of a holy God. And indeed, he paid the price for he would spend the rest of his life cursed with leprosy. And we need to be careful and see this story as a warning that pride can creep in, arrogance can creep in on any of us, and it often does in the moments when we are at our strongest, when we are at our best, when we are most pursuing God. I would propose to you today that arrogance finds a home where reverence is absent. Where we fail to approach the throne of grace with reverence, when we fail to worship a holy God with reverence and respect and awe and an appropriate fear, that is when arrogance creeps in. 
This has ramifications. This has implications for us as a church, for all of God's church, universal. This is why I, I get so uncomfortable when I see churches approaching worship with such a laissez-faire attitude, with such a, a what seems to be casual attitude with how we come to engage in the worship of a holy God. For what we do here every Sunday morning is not a casual thing. It is not something that we come to lightly, but we are coming to worship a holy God. Unless we think otherwise, our God has not changed. Though we can approach his throne, it is not because he is less holy. The same God that struck down a man for simply touching the Ark of the Covenant to keep it on the cart struck him dead. Because he is so holy, he is not to be, a, he acted in a wrong way and crossed the holiness of God and dropped dead. The same God that wiped out whole people groups for rebelling against him. The same God who opened up the earth and swallowed up even Israelites for failing to approach his throne with holiness. The same God who, if a priest were to enter into the Holy of Holies without having made sacrifice for his sins, would have dropped dead. He has not changed. His holiness is not lessened. Even though we are able to approach his throne with confidence, what has changed? What has changed is our status in Christ Jesus. That when he died on the cross and said, it is finished, and the veil was torn in two in the holy of holies, access has now been granted into the very presence of God into his throne room because why? Christ has paid the price for us. We now enter into his presence clothed in Christ's righteousness, adopted as God's children, but it does not mean that he is less holy. And let us never forget that as we approach him in worship. Let us never become relaxed. Let us never become laissez-faire with our worship of God. Even though we come confidently before the throne of grace, we come reverently. Indeed, confidence and reverence are not opposing each other. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin. That when we come to worship the Lord God, we come and we do so in confidence, knowing that in Christ Jesus, we are forgiven of our sin, that we need not do anything to add to our righteousness. It has been fully accomplished in Christ Jesus. Nothing that we can do is going to change that, either for the better or for the lesser. We are Christ's, and Christ is God's. We can trust that our high priest is a good and great high priest, and so we come with confidence, but we never come without reverence. This is where arrogance creeps in. Let us always approach the throne of grace with confidence, but with arrogance, but without arrogance, with reverence. We need to recognize that in our redemption, in our restoration, we are able to draw near the throne with confidence, but not because God has changed but because he has done a work in us to make us righteous. Indeed, there's a great quote by R.C. Sproul, kind of the quote of his book, The Holiness of God. He says, the human dilemma is that God is holy and we are not. How can we approach the throne of grace with confidence when our God is so holy? We can do so in Christ Jesus. These passages are, are such a comfort to us, even though there is a warning built in here. There has to be. 
But these verses are intended to give us great hope, to, grip, to boost our confidence and our assurance in Christ Jesus. And I'm so thankful that, uh, that David chose these verses as our declaration of pardon today. Because indeed, when we read these verses as believers, those who are in Christ, we ought to say, yes, praise be to God. We have a great high priest who is interceding for us, who can sympathize with our weakness. We can come before the throne of grace with confidence. Why? To receive grace and mercy in our time of need. Because church family, when is our time of need? It is all the time. We are constantly in need of his grace, in need of his mercy. And when we come to his throne, that is what we receive in Christ Jesus. We read passages like this, and we as believers ought to take great comfort, great courage. There are many who read through the book of Hebrews and think that there is reason to doubt our salvation or think that we can lose our salvation or that somehow we can fall away from grace, but this is the furthest thing from the truth. Indeed, what the Holy Spirit would have us see as we read Hebrews, if we read it as believers, as those who are in Christ, what ought it do? It ought to boost our hope. It ought to boost our confidence. It ought to bolster our faith. But for those who are separated from Christ, it ought to cause you great fear. It ought to cause you great concern because the point is if you reject the new covenant, and Christ as the great high priest, and if you seek to rely on your own works and the old covenant and the law, then all that remains for you at God's throne is wrath. There is no grace. There is no mercy to be found for you apart from Christ. But the throne of grace becomes a throne of wrath to those who reject Christ Jesus. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, this is great hope. This is great comfort that in him we can approach with confidence the throne of grace and in our daily hour of need find grace and find mercy in him.